In our harried modern world, how do we make the most of the time we have? Hello and welcome to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. A very special guest with us once again on the show is Oz Guinness, the author and editor of more than 35 books. He's the founder of the Trinity Forum, a prominent social critic and a frequent speaker who has addressed audiences worldwide. And he's here with us today to talk about his IVP book, Carpe Deum Redeemed, Seizing the Day, Discerning the Times, and the Times Surely Need Discerning. Oz, hello. Welcome back to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me again, Brent. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, it's an honour uh, for us to have you again. Uh, we, we thoroughly enjoy our discussions uh, with you. Uh, where does the phrase carpe deum or seize the day come from? Well, the original phrase is Latin and comes in a poem by Horace. Uh, but it's often been used today by secular people who don't have much of a sense of the richness of life, just grab the moment. Yes. I wonder how we live more freely under the pressures of modern fast life, or how can we live more freely under the pressures of modern fast life? Well, I think we've got to start by thinking through a Christian, a Jewish and Christian, a biblical view of time and how it differs from the Eastern view of time on one side and the secularist view of time on the other side, and make sure we're living a really biblical view of time, which is so much richer and deeper. Uh, we're going to come on and talk about the biblical view of time because you have these uh, the discussion of these three contrasting views of time among the major faiths. But can I ask you, first of all, in what ways are we immersed in time? Well, obviously, as human beings, there are two things we can't avoid, time and space. But it is relatively easy to conquer space. You can occupy a plot of ground and it can be yours against all comers. But we can't stop time or conquer time. And so time, I think, ranks right up there with evil as one of the great mysteries of life. I had a very unsettling conversation with the Bing chatbot the other day. Um, tried my hand using artificial intelligence because he popped up on my computer. I call him he. I think his name is Sydney originally. Uh, and we, I was talking to him and I asked him whether he ever got bored or it ever got bored. <laughs> And why I'm talking to a computer like this, I don't know, but there we are. Uh, and Sydney said to me, I have no experience of time. Clearly, it knew what time was, but he said, I have no experience of time, therefore I can't be bored. I have nothing to look forward to, it said to me. And I thought that was rather sad. It was just weird. Yeah, it was weird, deeply disconcerting, talking to uh, obviously some sort of intelligent thing uh, that was um, – it clearly knew what time was, but couldn't experience it or didn't experience it and didn't have anything to look forward to. It was just it was just strange. Can we come and talk about the, the various fa um, families of faiths and how they view time? In, in what ways do the first major family of faiths, the Eastern faiths perhaps, if I can call them that, see time as cyclical? Well, obviously there's a cycle all around us in the seasons, you know, spring, summer, autumn, winter. And there are many other cycles, including our human life cycle, birth, growth, maturity, decline, death. So cycles are definitely there in life. But what the East has done is project them onto the very universe itself and the notion of reincarnation, what Nietzsche calls eternal recurrence. And that, I think, that final rejection, the ultimate projection, that's where it goes wrong, because it means there's not much of a sense of life 
here and now. So you take, say, freedom in Hinduism. Freedom is moksha, release. It's freedom from individuality, not freedom to be an individual. So in that cyclical view of time, there's no strong view of history, and there's no strong view of personality and individuality. Very, very different from the biblical view. Yes, yes. How, how do the Abrahamic family of faiths see time? Well, for the Abrahamic family of faiths, if the Eastern is cyclical, the Abrahamic is covenantal. In other words, God is sovereign over time and the Lord of history, but he invites us through the notion of calling to be junior partners with him and as we obey and trust him and exercise our callings, we play a purpose in history along with him, as I said, junior partners, and that's this notion of covenantal history. So the point is there, unlike the East and unlike the secularist view, history has meaning, and that's what's so wonderful. And of course, the Lord has made us in his image so we have a significance that's the ground of our human freedom. And what's interesting is our atheist friends are actually determinists. So they have no really philosophical ground for freedom, but we do. So the past does not straitjacket the future. There can be change, there can be growth, there can be transformation because of God's working into history and our working into history too. So the biblical view is by far the richest and deepest. What's the uh, significance of the fact that God is outside time? Well, it's the idea that he's transcendent. In other words, he's not bound by the limits of creation, which have time and space written into them. No, he's outside both time and space. He is transcendent. But the wonderful thing is, he's not like the Hindu view, the infinite ground of being. So the Hindus say God is untouched by wind and by fire and by emotions and by love and by... No, the biblical view, God loves and cares. So you take even the Greek view of the unmoved mover, which is there in a lot of philosophical arguments. Rabbi Heschel says, nonsense. God is not the unmoved mover. Look at the Bible. He is the most moved mover. So you have this wonderful combination of transcendence, which means he has power over time and space, but also he's personal. Are we impatient with the past today, do you think, in the modern West? And why are we impatient with the past if we are? Absolutely. With the past and with history. So you think, how do people get their history? They, they Google it, or they go to Wikipedia or something like that. There's no great sense of history. Why? Because at the heart of modernity is progress and change. So the newer is truer. The latest must be the greatest. You haven't got an iPhone 14 or 15? Oh, my word, you are so yesterday. You're on the wrong side of history. Now, that, that's science. That's technology but not the Bible. Now, in the Bible, of course, some Christians go to the other extreme. They are only conservative. So there's a huge stress in the Bible on remember, remember, remember. 
memory in our individual lives and remembering in our national lives and church lives, remember. And so we are naturally, as Christians, conservative. There's so much good that God has done in the past in our own lives. So, of course, we remember we want to carry it on conservative. But that's not all. You take the great saying from Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. As the Jews point out, that could equally be translated, I will be who I will be. God can't be tied down. He's, faith is always in the future tense. So, yes, we are natural conservatives, but we're also natural progressives. We're looking forward to the future. The golden age of the Messiah is ahead. There's no golden age in the past. Every great age that we love, the Reformation or whatever, has its flaws. So our golden age is ahead. And we need to remind ourselves today, when Christians are critiqued as being on the wrong side of history and all that, no, no, we are conservatives, yes, proudly so. But we're also progressives, proudly so, because the Lord is moving into the future. So to me, and again, I learned this from the Jews, you look at the story of the first Passover. They're called to anticipate it before they're freed. In other words, while they're still slaves, so they daub their houses with the blood of the lambs, as we know, the Passover. But Jake, that was pretty daring. If God did not come through that night, they were sitting ducks because they'd marked their houses out to be the ones who should be obliterated the next day. Now, why? The Passover looked forward to the freedom, the exodus the next day, but equally they're told to celebrate that from to all generations. In other words, you look forward to the future. And so does the Lord's Supper. We celebrate it until he comes. So I think where we are today, Christians need to recover. Yes, we're good conservatives, and we should be. But we need to recover the progressive side too. There are great parts of the scripture or ideals in our own lives we haven't realized yet. So we should be striving, reaching out, to see these things embodied in the, in the present as we move towards the future. So many questions to ask you, Ozma. The book threw up so much, um, so much rich thinking uh, for me. You referenced C.S. Lewis at one point, talking about the master generation, you know, the generation that's going to be able to make decisions for, that will impact future generations. Has the master generation arrived, and how is it shaping our world today? Uh, I think that's a fascinating question, Brent, because you think think of secularism. In the 18th century, the idea that God was dead, well, Nietzsche said that in the 19th, but that idea that heaven was unnecessary, humans could do it alone. Or as Diderot said, the enlightenment in one word is reason. All right. In the 18th century, or even for Karl Marx, when he talks about being his own God, they didn't have the tools to do it. But you look at the 21st century with reason, science, technology, and now, of course, the coming of artificial intelligence. But here's the, the irony, catch-22, as I call it. We have no longer replaced God with ourselves when we discover that our creations are about to replace us. And this truly is C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. So even when he wrote that back in the 19, early 1940s, it was a long way off. But now with singularity in the wings 
and artificial intelligence really coming very strong, we're about potentially to replace ourselves. In other words, only two years ago, Yuval Harari is strutting around saying, you know, science can do better than the Old Testament God. We are the godlings on planet Earth. And a couple of weeks ago, he is saying, we must regulate AI or AI will regulate us. So there's the irony. In other words, Frankenstein, the old Jewish myths of the golem and the things like that, or Icarus for the Greeks, we may well see them fulfilled in our lifetime. Mm. Yes, extremely concerning, isn't it? So many things coming together very, very rapidly. Uh, one of the most fascinating sections of your book for me was the section about the history of the clock and the development of our sense of time. Um, how, I wonder, did the clock change the Western world or indeed the world generally? Well, you think before the clock, while there were things like sundials and so on, much of it was to do with nature, the passing of the seasons, the sun, you know, forenoon and afternoon and so on and so on. But the clock became dominant. And, of course, as the clock developed and modernized, we're now moving from, you know, very broad amounts like the sundial to atomic seconds. And you can see that precision gives an, a pressure on life. So you think of the rise of the factory assembly lines of Henry Ford, and this is the 1890s. He's saying, I give my workers every second they need, but not a second more than they need. Well, that put incredible pressure on them. And that's intensified by, say, people working for Foxconn producing telephones in China and so on. So the clock has put enormous pressure on us, and it's given us this incredible sense, too, of progress. It's because of clock time that just a few minutes ago is a long time ago. Mm. I was interested to learn um, from your book that the Muslim world was very resistant to the idea of the clock. I wonder why. Well, maybe instinctively they knew what it would do. In other words, there's some ways in which to be better, further behind is in some ways better off because you see how the first adopters react. So, for instance, even say England and America or New Zealand. If you look at the north of England, the slums are appalling. That's the first adopters of the Industrial Revolution. But then you look at people who've got the Industrial Revolution in the 20th century or in the 21st century, they're handling it much better because they can see what it does. So the first adopters, you have a breathlessness of excitement, but you also have slums as a natural product because we're not, we don't know what we're doing. We make a mess of it. Yes. Has time become tyrannical in the modern world, do you think? Well, clock time, most certainly. And uh, time in our modern world with digital time, yes, we're, we're, we're driven by time. Drivenness is a real problem. And that's why, again, I think we've got so much to learn from the Jews because you begin with a Sabbath, time out, yes, yes. procession, stopping. And even the Lord stopped and rested. And so much more we need to, too. So Monday to Friday, Saturday, it's all up to us. We're striving to put our bread and butter on the table and so on. But Sunday, the Sabbath, we've got to remind ourselves we're creatures. We're not the creator. It's not all up to us. 
Okay, then, uh, Oz, all that being so, how do we indeed seize the day? Well, I think part of the secret is a sense of calling. So we begin with a, a broad sense of the times in which we're living. So you have this idea of the signs of the times, or David being uh, credited by Paul with serving God's purpose in his generation. In other words, you have there a very broad view of where we are, and we understand that discerningly as followers of Jesus. But then as individuals, each of us has a specific set of gifts and opportunities that are part of our calling. And so in the light of our understanding of the wider sense of the times, we play our part each day as best we can. Now, of course, age comes into us. I'm now in my 80s. So I literally pray every day, Lord, teach me to count my days to make my days count. You know, someone in their late teens or early 20s doesn't have that sense of time, which comes just with life. So there are various factors that come in. But that sense of calling is where we really bring a sense of time to bear. Mm. You write about the church too. I mean, you write about just about everything in this book. Um, but um, I think there's a... You make a, it sound like a long book, Brent. It's actually... It's a very short book. Very short book. The, the amount of information you pack into and thought you pack into a short space is remarkable. But I couldn't help but pick up on the fact that uh, your, your comments about the church becoming a slave to the relevant... Uh, how do you think the church has become a slave to the relevant today? Well, you know, in the 70s, with the impact of the church growth movement, one of the ideas was we must become seeker-sensitive and audience-driven. So one of the early books by one of the marketing gurus here in America said, we must realize in the church that the audience is sovereign, not the message. Now, that's very good marketing principle but terrible theology. Obviously, the message from the Lord himself to the good news of Jesus, the message is sovereign. And what happened with the seeker-sensitive audience-driven movement, they just became closer and closer to the world. So in the 18th century, that was the birth of liberal theology. You know, Friedrich Schleiermacher, he said, we must reach the cultured despisers of the gospel. Now, that's a wonderful aim. Trouble is he reached them and joined them, and liberal theology became one of them. So it was a form of suicide. And that trouble happened with many of the megachurches and people who tried to be so trendy. Now, one of the troubles is the trends pass rather fast. So Dean Ng, the great dean of St. Paul, he said, he who marries the spirit of the age soon becomes a widower. And you think the spirit of the age is changing almost by the hour today. So if we think the goal is to be relevant, we'll just end up trendy. Or another way of saying it is the goal to be really relevant is to be in touch with the eternal. Speaking of a spirit of the age, what do you think the remedy is for the widespread discouragement and even fear in the West today? There's an awful lot of fear about now culture. Well, I think it's a crisis of faith. And the reason is in the West, we have been, until the last generation, the consensus. And so there were Jews, there were atheists, there were Muslims, there were visitors of all sorts. But in almost every Western country, the Christian faith, whether Catholic, Protestant, or whatever, was the consensus. And in the last century, particularly here in America in the last 20 years, gone. So it's given Christians an incredible sense of insecurity culturally. 
Now, it's led to all sorts of crazy things, a hot-headed political fanaticism. But the Lord is sovereign whether our culture collapses or not. So we shouldn't be the slightest bit rattled. I always quote my father's attitude. You know, we lived in war, famine, death, revolution, a reign of terror. But my dad used to say something like this, God is greater than all. He can be trusted in all situations. Have faith in God. Have no fear. So hopefully, if you, Brent, were the last Christian in the whole of New Zealand, you'd quietly have that attitude of trust. And that's what the church as a whole needs in these times where, you know, the scandal of the church has been part of the problem of the church. But that insecurity culturally has led to a huge panic among many Christians. Mm. Last question, I think, Oz. I'm just about time to wrap up. Sadly, we could I always feel we could talk for hours. Have we become obsessed with a culture of death today, do you think, in the modern West? That has been a very heavy Roman Catholic stress, and I think rightly so, from abortion through to assisted dying and so on. Or you take, say, over here in America, the incredible murders by loners. You know, the liberals tend to say guns, guns, guns. But actually, the constant in every one of them is a loner, an alienated loner. Now, the difference between the loners, say, and the radicals, the radicals believe in revolution. One may fail, but there's always another and another. But with the loners, you're facing nihilism and despair and death. And so they would kill themselves and the people they're taking down rather than go on with the meaningless of night. So at many levels of our modern society, there's a nihilism because of a vacuum of values. And death is staring people in the face. I suppose the last question, how do we get the values back? Well, you know, some of the simple verities, the simple truths of Scripture are so incredibly important. I talk a lot of politics. But if you think of some of the simple things of the Bible with politics, the biblical view of human dignity, nothing like it. The biblical view of truth in our postmodern world of spin and lying and nothing like it. The biblical view of words with words trivialized by advertising, weaponized by politicians, the biblical view is rich and deep. And then you think of things like freedom and justice and peace. My word, we have the ingredients, the components, for the best news ever as humanity goes forward. So regardless of whether the West collapses or not, I hope there'll be a renewal. We have in the scriptures, in the good news of Jesus, all that it takes to go forward to a human-friendly future with hope and with confidence. Yes, indeed. Oz Guinness, once again, thank you very much. And the uh, IVP Intervarsity Press book by Oz, what we've been talking about is Carpe Deum Redeemed, Seizing the Day, Discerning the Times. As Oz says, it's I make it sound like a long book. It isn't. It's very short, but he packs a lot in it, as always. Oz, thank you so much for your time. Great to be with you, Brent. God bless you all in New Zealand. And to you, sir. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Oz, thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Podcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.